Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day Spooky Season. and welcome to TGI Crime Day Spooky Season. For the next couple of episodes, I am going to take you on a journey through some of the spookiest haunted amusement parks in the U.S. I will tell you the tales of two famously haunted amusement parks today, and then in the next episode, I will have a few more, so make sure that you are subscribed on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts so you don't miss part two. If that is already out when you're listening to this, part two will be linked in the description for this episode. Some of these places are haunted by dark history and tragedy, some of them are haunted by actual ghosts and ghouls, but whichever way you spin it, these places are terrifying and fascinating in their own special ways. I'm personally of the belief that some places are forever changed and affected by the events that happen there, and it doesn't even specifically have to be ghosts or spirits or whatever, sometimes it's just other terrible vibes left behind. I feel like we all probably have places that little pieces of ourselves haunt, like when we leave those places but our trauma stays behind. Do you know what I mean? Speaking of trauma, there's a spider on my laptop. Hold on. And we're back. (laughs) Wowzas. As I was saying, I personally think that sometimes when we go through traumatic events, if you went through a really horrible breakup in a certain apartment, I think there's just like a little piece of your soul that gets left behind that maybe haunts those areas. Maybe that's insane, but some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Anyways, hop into my haunted school bus and let's go on a little trip to some famously haunted amusement parks. If you do a quick Google for haunted amusement parks, one of the locations that you are sure to stumble upon is the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park is located in Mercer County, West Virginia. While there are plenty of haunting stories to go along with this park, it also has a really sad history that cannot be ignored. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park is located on Route 19 between Princeton and Matoka in West Virginia. I hope that I am saying that correctly. West Virginians, is it Matoka? Long before it was home to a pretty questionable amusement park, this area was very important to the indigenous Shawnee tribes. In a lot of the articles that I read about the history of this land, it is spun in a very particular way, as U.S. history often is. Um, So I want to talk a little bit more about the actual events that happened on this land. This area of Mercer County was one of the first to be colonized by white settlers in the 1700s, which basically means that the U.S. government was quote-unquote selling land that definitely wasn't theirs to sell and pushing out the indigenous people. Mitchell Clay, his wife Phoebe, and their six children moved to West Virginia in 1775 to build a farm on this Shawnee Territory land. There had been a long-time battle and many disagreements over this particular piece of land that continued while the Clays were living there. While the Shawnee people weren't actively living on this land at the time, it was a very sacred place to them. They warned the Clays many times, and the other settlers, and like I said, there was kind of this unspoken war going on for years over this specific plot of land. I feel it's important to include that piece of information because a lot of the articles I read spun this story in a way that made the next part sound like it was completely unprovoked. Obviously, not that it makes what happened okay, This whole situation is an absolute tragedy, but this was part of how things went during this time in history. So eventually it ended in violence from both the Native Americans and the settlers. 
One day while Mitchell Clay was out hunting, a group of Shawnee men came to the farm and attacked Mitchell's older sons who were working in the field building a fence. It's hard to track down their exact ages, but I believe his older kids were between 16 and 18 years old. Bartley Clay was shot by one of the Shawnee men, and when Mitchell's oldest daughter, Tabitha, heard the shot, she ran out to see what was going on. There was some kind of a struggle, and Tabitha was stabbed to death in the fight. Ezekiel, the oldest son, was taken by the Shawnee men. Mitchell gathered some of the other settlers and tracked these men to Ohio, where he found that Ezekiel had been burned at the stake. There was a bloody fight that ended with deaths from both sides, and from what I understand, the Shawnee leader allowed Mitchell to take Ezekiel's body back to the farm to be buried with his siblings. Tabitha, Ezekiel, and Bartley Clay are still buried on the property, and there is a grave marker that stands there today. The tragedy of the Clay children was one big, devastating event that happened on this land, and for a long time was the most well-known. However, centuries later, when there was construction being done on the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park in 1988, the current owners discovered some artifacts from the Shawnee people, including pottery, arrowheads, and things like that. But as they continued digging, they uncovered a set of human remains. An archaeological dig was set up by the Marshall and Concord Colleges, and as they continued to dig, they found more and more sets of human remains. Eventually, it was decided that the dig would end, and they would leave these people to rest. There were an estimated 3,000 people, many of them children, buried on this plot of land. So here's my question. Was this actually the first time discovering this? No one knew it was there for centuries. Or had people known centuries earlier, were they told by the Shawnee people, and they just chose to ignore it during their selfish attempt to remove the indigenous people from their own land? Because I'm pretty sure it was probably explained to the settlers when the Shawnee people asked them not to build on this very important piece of land, that was the whole thing, was that it was this huge fight over this specific plot. And I doubt that they didn't explain to them that it's because it was a burial ground for part of their Shawnee tribe. Sorry. <laughs> Ranting. No, you know what? Actually, I'm not sorry. I get really irritated and horrified, actually, as I continue to learn these little pieces of history that have been fed to me through a very specific lens my whole life. And I don't want to do that annoying thing where I'm like this white woman speaking about a culture that is not my own, but I am trying to better educate myself and I encourage you to try to do the same and look at things through a different lens because the story of the Clay children is very well known, but it's often painted in a way, like I said, where it seems like this attack was just unprovoked and it was like they had no idea what was going on. And then years and years later, we find this burial ground and it's like, did they really not know or did they know exactly what? they were doing. Anyways, I'm gonna, <laughs> I will leave it alone. But from what I understand, the archaeologists that did this dig pieced together the theory that maybe these people were buried there because there had been a big um, outbreak of some kind of a disease among the Shawnee people. And that led to a lot of people dying and that led to this mass grave. And they decided to leave that area of land to become that sacred place for this burial ground. And then the settlers came in and decided that they didn't care that it was a sacred place for the Shawnee people and sold it to the Clay family. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. But here's, I also would like to know, because I haven't seen anything specific about it, is there a memorial marker for the thousands of Native Americans buried on this property? Because there's a sign for the Clay children and they did stop construction. They stopped digging up the graves and they've left them to rest. Uh, it's never been developed or like built over, but come on. <laughs> Do we have some kind of a memorial marker there? Okay, rant over, moving on. So that being said, 
This area obviously has a very tragic history that has led many people to believe that it was maybe haunted or cursed, or maybe both way long before the amusement park was even built there. In the 1920s, this area of West Virginia was experiencing a coal mining boom, and the land where the Clay's farm was built remained isolated and undeveloped. With a lot of people moving into the region for coal mining, new businesses were popping up, and an entrepreneur, who I can't help but picture looking like Mr. Fish Odor from Bob's Burgers, <laughs> he had a brilliant idea. Conley T. Snido bought the land and decided it would be a great place to build an amusement park for the families in the nearby coal mining town. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park opened its doors in 1926 and was an immediate success. People loved it. There were a few different rides, including those spinning swings, which were my favorite as a kid, but as an adult kind of make me want to throw up. And then they also had a massive Ferris wheel that stood high above the surrounding booths. There is a natural pond on the property that was drained and transformed into a concrete swimming pool with a boathouse and small paddle boats. There were two water slides and a couple of diving boards as well. And there was even a saloon and speakeasy with dancing and gambling available for the grown-ups to go, you know, get a little sloshed while their kids hung out on those rickety old swings. I love that for them. Obviously, this wouldn't be on a list of terrifying amusement parks if it was all fun and games. Sadly, this amusement park had many deaths that occurred on the grounds. Over the 40 years it was open, at least six children died at the park. One girl fell from the spinning swings, and another girl was killed in an accident when a truck delivering soda to the concession stand reversed into the girl while she was on the swings. I don't understand how that happens. What was that guy doing? Why are you driving that close to these giant spinning swings? Anyways, another really devastating death happened when an 11-year-old boy was dropped off unsupervised for the day because it was the 60s. Yikes. And he was swimming alone in the pond when his arm got caught in a drain at the bottom of the pool. There was also a murder that happened at the speakeasy when a gambler was killed, of course, because of a bad deal and some kind of money exchange went wrong. Eventually, the park fell into disrepair, people stopped going, and it was abandoned for nature to take over. People say that this whole park is occupied by the shadows of what it once was. Sometimes you'll hear laughter in the wind or get a faint scent of hot dogs and sizzling onions from the concession stands. There's allegedly a shadow that occupies the Ferris wheel and people, especially kids, still see the little girl in her ruffled dress sitting on the swings. The amusement park sat empty for nearly 20 years until it was finally put on the market in 1985. A man named Gaylord White jumped on the opportunity to purchase the park. Gaylord had worked at the park when he was in high school a few decades earlier and absolutely loved it. His original plan was to tear most things out and develop a big part of the property into residential lots. But, like I mentioned before, when they started construction, the burial ground was found, so he decided to keep the land as it was and let them rest peacefully. Then they decided to do some restoration to the park since they figured they might as well jazz it up a little bit. Most of the original rides were sold off, so the Whites bought an old Ferris wheel to put up on the property, and the story with the swings is actually really interesting. So like I said, the original park had one of those big circular swings, uh, but it had been sold, but Gaylord really wanted to get a spinning swing that was just like the old one for the nostalgia of it all. They were able to track down a super old swing and compared the serial number on those swings to the documents about the original swings, and it was the same one, which is amazing and would explain the ghost attached to it that people have experiences with. Over the years, different ghost hunting shows have been to the property, including the Discovery Channel. Gaylord's son, Chris, 
said that during the filming, one of the producers got locked in an old ticket booth. The door wasn't locked. It was a push door. It didn't have a lock on it. She was pushing from the inside. Other people were pulling from the outside, but they could not get this door to open. She was basically trapped in there by some unseen force. He said that she was in such a panic, they ended up taking her to the hospital once they finally got her out. Hate that so much. Chris doesn't talk about his own paranormal experiences much, but he says that weird things definitely happen, and he shared a story about something his dad experienced. Chris said, quote, Dad was on the tractor mowing the field, and he kept feeling a weight on his shoulders. He didn't know what it was, so one day he felt the weight, and he turned around, and the little girl from the swings was there. She was in a ruffled dress, and she just appeared. He wasn't scared, but the only thing he could think to say was, well, if you like this tractor so much, I'm going to give it to you. So he got off of it and left it sitting there. It's still sitting there where he left it in the late 90s, end quote. Gaylord spent a lot of time and put a lot of care and effort into restoring the park and creating this really fun, spooky place for people to go and visit. He passed away a few years back and his wife, Jula, worried that she would have to sell the park because she wasn't able to take care of it on her own, but her sons stepped in and helped keep things going. One night, security footage captured the lap bar on one of the Ferris wheel carts opening on its own. When Jewel saw that, she said that Gaylord was always very particular about the Ferris wheel. He always was overchecking it and making sure that it was locked so that people would be safe on it. And she said that in this video, she was certain that it was him checking the lock and it made her happy to know that he was still around. The park hasn't changed much since the 80s. The White family still owns it and they open it every year around Halloween for their dark carnival. Their website says they have a freak show haunted maze, a photo and history tour, and they do an overnight experience where you can stay and ghost hunt and like have a campfire and stuff. I want to go so bad. If you've been to this, please tell me everything. All right, back in the haunted tour bus we go. Next stop, Kings Island Amusement Park in Ohio. Also, before I forget, I want to mention one of the really amazing sources I used for this portion of this episode. Kingsislandghost.blogspot.com had the most extensive deep dive research about this park. It's really hard to find the factual pieces because so much has turned into these haunting stories and urban legends. So that blog was super helpful and interesting. So if you are an Ohio native, or even if you're not, and you want to know more about this theme park, go check out that blog and dive a little deeper into Kings Island because it's a fascinating place. Kings Island opened in April 29, 1972 in Kings Mills, Ohio. Originally, the park offered 60 rides and attractions, and that number has grown to over 100 attractions as the park has grown in the last five decades. From what I've read, Kings Island is a very beloved part of Ohio, and many people have wonderful memories attached to visiting this park. A handful of the original rides are still there today, including the carousel and a roller coaster called the Racer. The Racer was originally a big wooden roller coaster and has been updated and given new tracks over the years. We actually have a very similar roller coaster at my local theme park in Utah. It's called Lagoon, and we have this big rickety coaster that often looks and feels like it's going to fall apart under you, but that's part of why it's so fun and why we love it so much. There are a few other bragging rights that Kings Island has earned over the years, including that they have an Eiffel Tower that is one-third scale to the real Eiffel Tower, with an elevator that you can take to the top and look out over the park. Evil Knievel set a world record when he jumped 14 Greyhound buses on a motorcycle in the parking lot in 1975. They also opened a ride called The Beast in 1979 that still holds the title as the world's longest wooden roller coaster with 7,359 feet of track looping its way through a forested area of the park. 
Kings Island also has a coaster that holds the record for the longest inverted roller coaster in the world. It's called the Banshee, and it opened in 2014 and is 4,124 feet of track. They have a lot of really unique rides that raise the bar for theme park experiences. However, Kings Island would not be on this list if it was all fun and games and world records. Some parts of the park's history are the fun kind of spooky, and others are tragic tales of terrible accidents. One of the early additions to the park was a safari ride featuring 362 animals roaming through three separate preserves. People could ride a train through the enclosures, and there were rangers that worked on the safari year-round, taking care of the animals and keeping everyone safe. One ranger working there in 1975 was a 20-year-old man named Jack McCann. Other park rangers said that Jack had a very bad habit of breaking certain safety protocols, including leaving his jeep unarmed for a number of random reasons. One day, Jack saw that an antelope had wandered from its designated area into the tiger enclosure. Jack jumped out of his jeep in front of several tigers and basically herded the antelope to safety. Another ranger watched this happen, and I think we can all agree it was very noble of him to do that, but that other ranger told him not to do anything like that again. His life was more important than saving the antelope. However, Jack did not take that warning seriously. Over the next couple of months, Jack was scratched badly by a lion and needed stitches. Rangers saw him letting the big cats jump up on top of the hood of his Jeep, uh, which was a huge no-no. He would get out of his Jeep without his gun alone and wander around with the lions, which was, again, against the rules. Honestly, I can't figure out how he didn't get fired. Maybe because it was the 70s. On July 24th, 1976, multiple people on the train reported seeing Jack get out of his Jeep and pat the lions on the head. Another ranger saw him walk up and pull the tail of one of the lions, something that he'd gotten in trouble for multiple times before. At some point that day, Jack told another ranger that he was going to drive up to a different part of the enclosure and check on the cats there. They didn't hear back from Jack for a few hours, so eventually another ranger went up to find him. The ranger who went to look for him found a devastating scene when he realized that Jack had been mauled to death by a group of lions. Jack clearly liked working with the big cats. He enjoyed his job, but he didn't take the safety measures seriously, and it ended with his tragic death. It's so awful and so sad. In 1983, tragedy struck again at the park. A young man named John Harder was at the park for his high school grad night. He was only 17 years old. He was at the park with all of his friends having a good time. The quotes I read about John, everyone said that he was really nice and funny and outgoing. People loved this kid. He was a real life of the party type of person. Apparently, John and the other kids had been drinking and being goofy teenagers, but no one can quite put their finger on why John decided to climb up into an off-limits area of the Eiffel Tower. There are specific areas that you can go on to different observation decks from the elevators in the tower. There are also sets of stairs for emergency exits, but for some reason, that night, John climbed over a 10-foot safety wall to an unauthorized area inside the tower. This wall basically blocked off the middle of the tower, if I understand correctly, where there are the support beams. Witness statements from that night are a little bit fuzzy, but from what I understand, Jack fell from the structural beams in the elevator shaft, almost a 200 feet drop, and landed on top of the elevator at the bottom. An absolutely tragic event, and no one can give a definitive answer as to what exactly happened here. One of John's family members said that he was not someone who was the daredevil type, and they felt that while John loved an audience, he wouldn't have thought to do something like that on his own. Not that anyone thinks this was like a murder or anything suspicious like that, but possibly someone dared him to go up there. I don't know, it, but it's awful and so heartbreaking. 
Another accidental death happened at the park on August 2, 1986, when a 26-year-old man named Mark Beckman dove off a 13-foot-high platform into a fountain that was only two feet deep and broke his neck. I don't know how he got up onto that platform or why, but again, sad and tragic. Thomas Cajal was a talented tuba player for one of the performances at the park, and on August 5, 1989, Thomas was walking through the employee parking lot after his shift when he was struck by lightning. A freak accident that no one could have prepared for, but again, so sad. The Cincinnati Inquirer called June 9, 1991, the deadliest day at Kings Island. Reading the articles written by Chris Graves, Mark Seibert, and Kevin O'Hanlon for the Cincinnati Inquirer made me cry, so I'm going to do my best to get through this next part because it's just, it's awful. All of these are just awful and so upsetting. So on June 9th, 1991, a young man named Timothy Binning took his friend William Haithcote to Kings Island as his guest for the Employee Appreciation Day at Timothy's company. Timothy was 22 and William was 21. They were walking across a bridge over a pond near the beer garden when Timothy reached into the water to jokingly splash William. When he reached his hand in, Timothy was jolted by an electric shock and fell into the pond. William jumped in to save his struggling friend, and he was fatally electrocuted. Daryl Robertson, a 20-year-old security guard, saw the men struggling and also jumped into the pond trying to help and was fatally shocked as well. Timothy survived and was rushed to the hospital and was obviously devastated that his friend and the security guard had died. I cannot even imagine experiencing that. There was a big investigation done into how the hell this water was electrified in the first place. Apparently, there was a surge in an aerator pump that didn't have a functioning ground fault circuit interrupter, which a quick Google told me is a safety device that will automatically shut off power if there is an issue with the wiring or if there's like an electric leak such that could cause a pond to become electrified. I saw that the park had to pay a big fine for the faulty electrical issues, and I hope that the families all sued the park big time. Not that money can fix what happened, but it's something. Um, and then hopefully they move forward and don't allow that to happen to someone else. Unfortunately, that was not the only tragedy that happened that day. That very same day, only an hour later, 200 yards across the park, another horrible accident happened on a ride called Flight Commander. I'm going to describe this ride to you the best that I can. If you're watching on YouTube, I will put a picture up. But imagine those big spinning swings that we talked about earlier that are attached to that big round part at the top and they go around in circles. Are you with me? Imagine that, but instead of chains with swings attached, they have these long metal arms with these two-person pods attached to the end. So you sit side by side in the pod, the top is open, and you have a joystick that controls if the arm goes up or down, and you can rotate the pod 360 degrees. So that's where you lost me. The being able to rotate a pod with no roof seems like a terrible idea, and it absolutely was. Flight Commander opened in 1990, so it was a very new ride when this happened. A 32-year-old woman named Candy Taylor was on the ride by herself, and from what I understand, somehow while she was on the ride, she slipped out of her seat restraint and into the seat next to her, and the restraint on that seat was not engaged because no one was sitting there, so she fell out of the ride. And it kind of irritates me because in the articles, they mentioned that Candy's blood alcohol level was at 0.30% when she died, as if that has anything to do with the safety issues of the ride itself. I kind of get why they mention it, but it almost feels like they're kind of pointing at her being 
intoxicated as to why this happened, and it's just, that's not the case at all. The investigation that followed determined that the lack of seat divider, the empty seat next to her, and the seat restraint next to her left opened caused the fatal accident. There was nothing that she could have done to prevent what happened. Candy's family got $336,500 in a settlement from Kings Island, and then they sued the company that made the ride for $8.8 million. Good for them. I wish it was more. Like I said before, it's not like it brings her back or makes up for it, but when something like that happens, this was obviously an issue with the ride. Someone needs to pay up and admit fault, and they need to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again with future rides. And if I understand correctly, that accident on the flight commander ride was the first death that occurred because of an actual ride and not because of a terrible accident or, you know, people being in places they shouldn't have been. So for the most part, this park really tried to do things in a way that was safe as possible for the guests. After Candy's death, the ride was updated with new safety measures and reopened sometime in 1992. It closed permanently in 1995, three years too late in my opinion, but people basically just didn't want to go on the ride anymore. They didn't trust it and it just didn't feel right to continue riding it with what happened. So Flight Command was sold to a different theme park where it was in use until 2004. So a place with such awful events is bound to have haunting stories and urban legends galore and Kings Island is no exception. During the original construction in the 70s, a very small, very old cemetery was found on the 60 acres where the park was being built. This land was formerly owned by a farmer named John D. Hoff, who worked on the land in the 1800s, and this small cemetery was basically a family cemetery that hadn't been in use or updated since the 1890s. Rather than relocating and disturbing the remains, the owner of Kings Island Amusement Park decided it was just easier and safer to keep the cemetery there. And I'm not sure the exact location of the cemetery, but as far as I know, it's still somewhere on the property. So if you happen to know where it's located, I would love to know. I just think that's really interesting that they left it there. An article on the Ohio's largest playground website by Jessica Lewis says, quote, Today, legend has it that those same officials inadvertently paved over a grave when creating what is now the park's guest parking lot, resulting in an agitated spirit. According to stories, a little girl with blonde hair and a blue dress known as Sarah can often be seen in the parking lot. While she is certainly spooky, she is also very playful and enjoys jumping out in front of cars headed toward the exit. While there is no evidence to prove the park paved over any graves, cemetery records do suggest the possibility. Since 1980, about 17 tombstones have gone missing from the cemetery, leading many to believe it may be a pattern. If, in fact, Sarah's tombstone is no longer in the cemetery, it's possible that she is now forced to roam the area until her plot is rediscovered, end quote. Something about the idea of a little girl ghost that thinks it's hilarious to jump out in front of cars and scare people in the middle of the night is so funny to me. Many workers and guests have said that they have seen the apparition of a little girl in a blue dress who will jump in front of the park trams so that the drivers have to slam on their brakes, but when they get out to make sure that no one's hurt, she's gone. This has led to some people calling her the quote-unquote tram girl. Queen City paranormal investigators call this particular ghost Missouri Jane because a grave in the cemetery is marked with the name Missouri Jane Galener, who died in 1846 at the age of five. People who have experiences with her say that she doesn't seem scary, if anything, she seems really friendly. Psychics who have visited the park say that Missouri Jane is a friendly spirit, but is sad seeing all the children in the park having fun without her, which makes me so sad to think about this poor little girl ghost feeling left out on all of the fun. But I, I mean, you know, she finds ways to keep herself busy and scaring the patrons is probably a, a good time. And there are a few other ghosts around to keep her company. 
Another famous ghost at the park is known as Racer Boy. He's been seen wandering around the park near the Racer Roller Coaster that was actually built before Kings Island existed. The Racer Roller Coaster was originally at Cincinnati's Coney Island and was called the Shooting Star, but that theme park closed, so the racer was moved to Kings Island and renamed. This little ghost is described as wearing all white, and multiple guests have reported to employees about seeing a child wandering alone way too close to the tracks, but then when they go to look for him, he's nowhere to be seen. The urban legend, with no factual evidence as far as I can tell, says that a long time ago, a boy was found dead on the tracks of the shooting star. Supposedly, this boy started the ride sitting in the back of the roller coaster, and when it pulled back in after the trip around the track, he was gone. Like I said, there's no evidence that that actually happened. It's just kind of the story that has been created over the years, and it's said that now his ghost is spotted in the tunnel of the ride and standing along the tracks. But it's a haunting that is always told when the ghosts of Kings Island come up. Probably the most well-known ghost is that of John Harder, the young man who fell from the Eiffel Tower attraction. He's lovingly known as Tower Johnny, and guests claim that they can see him looking out at them from the tower. He's also been spotted hanging out by the fountain in front of the tower. Employees often blame Tower Johnny for odd things that happen at the park, including electrical malfunctions. Supposedly, when things like sensors are tripped with no obvious cause, employees call these electrical issues Johnny's. If you work at Kings Island or know someone that does or has, please tell me. Is that true? Did they call that a Johnny? I kind of love that. There is also a well-known ghost story about the Whitewater Canyon rafting ride. Multiple employees have experienced hearing someone laughing after the last visitors leave the park for the night. The laughter is usually accompanied by rocks being thrown at the observation towers, but they don't see anyone around. This ghost has been nicknamed Woody and is usually experienced by people working in the Observation Tower 2, which is pretty deep in the woods and only accessible by a small footpath that not many people know is there. The last well-known spooky occurrence at Kings Island has to do with the woods surrounding the roller coaster called The Beast. The pictures I saw of this roller coaster are nuts. The whole thing is surrounded by trees. It looks like it's growing out of the middle of a forest. It's really cool. But because it's so closely surrounded by trees... It's hard to know what's looking out from the forest at the people riding the roller coaster. Many people have said that they see glowing red eyes as they zoom through the trees and lots of the employees refuse to go into the woods surrounding the ride. And I don't blame them. It looks like it's full of monsters and, you know, don't, like we've learned from Appalachia, don't look at the stuff in the trees. And those are our two spooky dark history haunted theme parks for this week. Like I said, I will have a couple more for you in the next episode. If you liked this episode, please let me know. If you have any suggestions for other haunted theme parks that you would like me to talk about, please give me your list. And if you have personal stories of working at a haunted theme park or visiting a haunted theme park, I want to know everything. Send me an email at tgicrimeday at gmail.com with your personal stories. I would love to include them in a future episode. And again, if you have any specific suggestions for other haunted places. It doesn't have to be a theme park, but if it happens to be a theme park, that's great. Send those my way. Don't forget to do all of the things. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow me wherever you get your audio podcasts. I'm on um, Instagram and TikTok. So come hang out over there and I will talk to you very soon. Until next time, please be safe. When you go to theme parks, I am begging you, follow the rules, okay? They're there to keep you safe. 